This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. Today on our episode of Late Boomers, we will be speaking with Rick Hack, who is head of media and entertainment partnerships for Intel. He received a Lumiere Award from the Advanced Imaging Society and an Emmy nomination for the Spider-Man Homecoming VR Experience. And I'm Mary Elkins. Rick forges partnerships between industry leaders in the media and entertainment and the tech space to drive awareness and early adoption of new Intel technologies, solutions, platforms, and products. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, guys. My goodness, that was such a great intro. I wish I could have you on every single one of my calls. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, we're, we're there for you. We'll be there. Tell us a little bit about your early career and how you arrived at the place you are now. Thank you, yes. So I started off my career more in the artist side. I was a performer in a rock band. I toured quite a bit in the Southeast with playing with artists like, um, if you're familiar with the Southeast bands like Driving and Crying, Kevin Kinney, and the Root Doctors, and even Hootie and the Blowfish when in their early stages before they launched in their massive career. Um, bands like uh, Tonic and Marcy Playground, that when they, would, when they would come through town, we would be the fortunate ones to get to open up for those guys. So at the same time, I was moonlight, I guess I was a moonlight artist <laughs> where I was performing at night and then during the day, I was working as a sales executive for um, media and entertainment type of companies, Clear Channel, um, Cablevision at the time. And then I just realized, you know, the band uh, was funny. The, the drummer got the uh, the drummer got our manager, who was a female, got the drum, um, pregnant, and so then Oops. the bass player wanted to go back to school, and the band just we we, we just we just parted ways, and I moved out. To, I, I literally took my entire vacation and moved out west, drove across country, which was an amazing experience in itself. My yeah. buddy was one of the first employees over at Yahoo and he's like, Rick, you got to come out here, man. Things are just happening in Silicon Valley. And so he kind of gave me a crash course and what, you know, what was going on there. And I landed, a, I landed a gig. I took my entire vacation. I flew out to San Francisco and interviewed at a bunch of companies, landed a job and then um, moved out West um, working for a film destination site, pre Netflix subscription based model where we would, um, work with a bunch of independent companies, acquire their films, and then stream them. And at the time, 
this was like when broadband penetration was like, I don't know, eight or 9%. So, you know, we were streaming at 56K, 100K, ultimately up to like 300 to 500K at the time, right? Um, and then I got um, quickly, San Francisco at the time, it was the early 2000s, um, was going through such a transition, as everybody remember the first wave, then um, that company was, was purchased and then moved to LA. So I got a gig um, down here, which started really my career in media and entertainment on the executive side and really understanding advertising and then understanding licensing. So I worked for a company that was doing software in the licensing space and then um, ended up getting a job at CBS, working my way up the ranks uh, to head up entertainment for the radio and digital side there. Um, and then um, working on the content creation side, I worked for Michael Bay for several years and then started consulting as everybody, like a lot of people do in this business, right? You, you gain mm -hmm. so much knowledge, you start consulting for a while. And then um, I got an unusual call, because at the time was I was at CBS, I created Forged a Partnership with CBS and Intel. And I stayed in touch with my, my relationships over there. And um, they said, hey, you know, I think you'd be great for this gig that we have over here. It's this media, what you described, you know, Mary and Kathy, thank you for the introduction. Um, and I said, no, I'm consulting. I got my own shingle here. And then I was like, oh, you know what? I just got married. <laughs> my wife, my wife and I want to have a baby, uh, maybe when some little bit of security and it kind of gives me all the tools, you know, this position really puts me in a really good place where I can offer up all these different tools to the media and entertainment industry and, and provide them answers to a lot of the challenges that they're facing right now. So I've been, I feel very fortunate, so thank you. It's wow. uh, what a great career. We'd love to hear a little more about your past as a rock musician. What did you play? And tell us more about being on the road, your early days there, and more about where you appeared and the people you met. Sure. So it was really funny. The first, um, the first gig I got was for this sort of goth rock band. I know you're looking at me like, really? Goth rock? I was so into <laughs> a lot of those bands when I was younger. I was into uh, Bauhaus and uh, there's a lot of um, Sisters of Mercy and a lot of those types of bands. And then the, I just wanted to play in a band. I just was like convinced. I was like, God, man, I know I've got a decent voice. I really want to play in a band. And it was funny. I, 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 it was years later I asked the guys, I said, so did you ever have other auditions? Because they, they were auditioning at the time. There's no social media back in the late 90s. The social media, the version of that was the trades. You know, it was the local, like, uh, the weekend paper. You know, they would put local ads and those types of things. And so I kept, I would call and I would show up at the, at the practice shed. It was a shed, literally the storage shed. And I was like, I was like, well, who else was in the running? It's like, you know, you kept coming. It's like, you just kept showing up, you know? Mm. And, you know, finally, it worked out. We, we started playing and, and we, we started to get some, uh, we started to get some attention of a couple of, a couple of groups and, and, and we started getting some intros and we started playing at some really cool clubs. And at the time, then we broke up and I found this other band that I wanted to play with. And in my shift in my taste in music started shifting a little bit more into Americana because I had been living in the South for quite a long time. So going from really that alternative and modern rock gothic sense to really 
starting having influences of Americana sense in, in the Southeast. I was like, man, I really, I'm really liking this sort of sound. And I started writing my own material. And then um, yeah, that started happening for us. We, we had, I had a, a couple guys that really could sing well with me. Um, I started doing a lot. I started learning, teaching myself how to play guitar a little bit more and writing my own material. And uh, we got a couple good breaks. I was working for the radio. I started working for the radio station. And I knew some of the people over there, but I knew like I wasn't going to put too put the pressure on them to, to say play by music. But that <laughs> sort of it wasn't. It's sort of what happened. It wasn't about pressure, but you know we, we, they liked the songs, and um, we started playing some of the events for the stations, and we started touring with bigger and bigger acts. And uh, the road was the road for me was weekends. It was Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Where on Thursday we would go someplace relatively local i say relatively local probably within an hour or two hours away and then i would return home and then next morning i'd have to work i was i would get to work at 8 a.m but i was in you know my mid-20s or whatever so you know i was i was a zombie but and my boss would always say man he's like rick you know you're like a you're really good at this job you know my boss from the radio station he was if you just focus all your attention on the job you could be our number one guy. He says, but I know you love your band and I can't beat you up because you're still making all your KPIs and your goal, you know, your sales goals and everything. He's like, but if you just focus. So literally your earliest audition, you were just auditioning as a singer without the guitar? Just as a singer? Correct. Yeah, I would audition ah. as a singer without my guitar. And then uh, I started doing some writing. I brought some of my songs to the table I wrote a, a really simplistic song. It was about my dad, actually, one of the first songs I wrote. Um, and uh, it ended up getting played at night, uh, late, late night on the local station. And some people, you know, they, again, we started gravitating towards some of the things that we had. And uh, putting out, a, at the time, we were putting out some cassette tapes and then demo stuff. And, and then we graduated to CDs at the time. And, um, and we started selling some. Of the, there, was, there was local, there was this whole community. What was so great about the Southeast and where in Columbia, South Carolina, where Cootie really broke, um, there's local, there was these, there was the radio station that would play local music at night. There was the radio, there was the, the record store that would carry local music, had a dedicated section. And there was these two clubs that would, that would really fight for the local talent and also major acts that would be like going from Charlotte. And we were like the logical stop. We were like next stop down to Atlanta like midway stop. And so we would, in you know, Columbia would be fortunate enough to capture some of those acts that would be coming through town. Um, I don't know if these, some of these other bands like Jolene and um, some of these bands out of North Carolina, Athenaeum, um, Dylan Fence. I don't know if any of these names mean anything to you, but um, so that's how the scene started building. It sounds fun and a great way to spend your twenties. I think. Ideal. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> My mom ideal. wasn't too happy. what are you doing with your life (laughs) can you tell us about volumetric video what it is and how you used it for a scene from greece and what was that about yeah thank you this is uh, a really interesting project and it all started about three years ago when randall kleiser the original director of greece came to the Lumiere Awards with us when we were nominated, I think, for another Lumiere 
uh, with Sony with the uh, Spider-Man project, which they ended up winning. And um, he said, and he brought this notebook. And Randall is such a sweet guy, he's such a great guy to work with. And he goes, I have this vision, you know, I have this vision of what I want to do with this project, and I want you to see it. And so, like physically, we had the, it wasn't like something on a phone or an iPad. He had this notebook and he was flipping through pages and I, because I could see us recreating a song. And if somebody like, for instance, was to create the movie today, what would Greece look like in, or, or to a movie of, or, a, or not a movie, but a piece of content for tomorrow, what would that look like? And, and, and we said, we know what the funny thing is, you know, Randall, we've got this amazing studio, this volumetric capture studio. It's, and it's relative to what we had done with Intel Sports, where I don't, I don't know if you've seen it, if you watch NFL or NBA, um, even some major league baseball games, where you stop on a single point of action, and then that scene somewhat rotates on an axis, uh, like the bullet time effect in the Matrix, if you're familiar with that, the bullet, that bullet time effect, where it rotates and you show that amazing replay of the slam dunk uh, of you of you crossing over uh, the, the, the end zone, that diving catch, whatever it might be. So we took that technology and placed it in the studio. And so we had, I had formed a relationship, formed a partnership with Paramount Pictures, um, with Jim Janopoulos, and we brought him out on the stage when we announced, they originally announced the studio, um, the Intel Studios, and what we were forging and what we wanted, we saw as content creation of the future. And working with Ted Shilowitz, who's just such an incredible um, visionary when it comes to being a futurist himself and innovation. And we really, it was us working hand in hand and then Jim walking out on stage with our CEO and saying, hey, we're, and shaking hands and saying, we're going to do this. And then we had to find the piece of content that was going to make it all come to life. And so Randall's piece, the Grease piece, and what you asked about volumetric video, Kathy. So if, if you imagine that bullet time effect, not just in a two-dimensional screen, but you you eventually being inside of something where it, well, they call it point cloud data. And, and I, I probably going to go above the audience here, but imagine a, uh, a half dome that sits over and it's, a, it's as close to 50 feet tall, about 120 feet wide, which has a hundred cameras hanging from the rafters, like an erector set all facing inward and capturing every point of data that's inside that capture space. So imagine if you're actually in a head-mounted display, a virtual reality type of experience, where you can kind of walk through and you could almost feel like you're touching or seeing every aspect as you're walking through um, all these elements that, that are in that virtual space and you're capturing every uh, element within, you know, we, we had actual dancers. We had close to 20 and 22 dancers on the given stage that would do, and it's never been done before, all that data that was captured um, and, and, and creating that scene where we went transition from the initial, from the, from the um, what is it, the, the dorm room to the, uh, the bandstand to the diner, and then ultimately to the last scene where, if you remember, when Danny and and um, Sandy are sitting in the car and they zoom off into outer space with a giant Ferris wheel. And yeah, feel like you're, uh, I remember it well. I week. watched that movie a hundred times. Yeah, that's yeah. astounding. Yeah. But, but we did it in augmented reality, so we actually 
you know, you actually could hold a tablet and you could see all these things. You can, you get closer to the characters, you can watch them dance. And, but once you capture that, you literally can put it in any given format that you could think of. So who got to see this? Was it? So we, we started off with, um, it was a teaser that we used. We, we, what we, what we thought was a uh, thinking about the future. Uh, we took it to CES as a teaser for a movie poster. And when you stand and in CES front of CES is what? Consumer electronics. Oh, sorry. Oh, the consumer electronics. Right, right. I knew that. Yeah, I just in, forgot. But in, hey, <laughs> it'll help a few other people that probably forgot. Year, right? Yeah. <laughs> Las Vegas. We haven't gone to CES. Everything's virtual, right? Um, yeah. So in 2019, I believe it was, we were at CES. We had um, a digital screen in place of what you would think is a static movie poster where the video was 30 seconds and it was, it was almost like a, a movie trailer. And when an individual or a guest walked in front of the screen, there was a trigger that triggered the video to start playing. And then you realize that with your body movements, you could start to see around the characters of your, you're looking at that digital screen. So we thought, wow, goodness, could you imagine in the future when you go to a movie theater and you walk past a screen, especially with directional audio and everything else, that it doesn't necessarily have to be a static poster anymore. Could it be something that really is interactive? where you put your hands up and you can see over top of the characters. When you look from side to side, you can almost see around those characters. And then could you actually control some of that experience? So that's really the, the interactive nature of what it could potentially be. Wow. And you took this to the Cannes uh, Festival XR? Sure. So, we, so it started, yeah, it's kick, thank you. So it, it started off at, at CES, and then that was a teaser to what we wanted to do at events um, like the Cannes Film Festival, and we showed a full three-minute version of You're the One That I Want in augmented reality. Mm. So um, I'm that, was, that was literally I'm with, to the, see that. with the tablet. What yeah, was I'll, the reaction? I'll send you a clip. What was the reaction? It was, it was incredible. You know, we, we, we didn't win the, um, the XR award. But we definitely had, you know, a, it, it's what's really interesting about Greece as a, an IP is that here we are at Cannes Film Festival and we had, we had Germans and we had, you know, South Americans. We had people from all over the world, Japanese people um, all over the world singing the song because they're in a headset and they're singing the song out loud and they're dancing as they're watching the video around the table because they, you had to face the tablet towards the table in order for the, the experience to work. And it looked like the experience was living on top of a tabletop. Um, so it was just, it was, it was really astounding. Was that more advanced than most of the other companies that displayed there? Volumetric video was definitely a forward face. It's a forward facing technology and, and futuristic technology that nobody had really seen some of the output that we had created and nobody had ever captured that many people at a given time uh, in a, on a single stage in a given moment. So yes, that was extremely unique. I think I'm not I have to, I haven't really, because the stage unfortunately didn't survive the pandemic. Um, but mm -hmm. you know, I think it's opened the door to some other um, companies like Riot and um, which is part of Yahoo and 
in, in Verizon. So there's definitely companies that have come since then that are starting to follow in these footsteps. Tell us about your past work launching social media fan advocacy platforms. So I worked for a company called Social Toaster, <laughs> which is a cute name in itself. Yeah. And Love it. at the time in the early 2010s, is that what you call the era? The two that was there between 2012 and 2014, this company based out of Baltimore, uh, had created a platform that allows you to connect all your different social media sites to build fan a fan type of platform and ways to and, and they gamified it in a way that the more you interact with the platform the more you share the, the content that ultimately the artist or the ip whatever it whether it's a studio whether it's an artist whether it's um, anything that's entertainment, most of it was entertainment related. So we, we did started to see some companies that came in that were more on the enterprise side, which was really interesting. I, I focused on entertainment, but we created the Spider-Man uh, fan, fan, fandom, which was all about the, it was coming up, I think on the second Spider-Man at the time, or the, the reboot of the series or the first reboot of the series um, film. And they wanted to take a lot of the content and provide it on this centralized location where fans could share on their fan pages. And the more they shared, the more rewards they would receive. Hmm. So we had done that. Um, we started working with um, another Sony prop. We did a, we did a, I did a lot of work with Sony. And then we started working with, um, God, what, who else? It was, uh, uh, there's a couple singers and songwriters that we also had worked with at the time. It was escaping me. I wish I, had, I wish I knew that question beforehand. I would have prepared. Oh, Mary. I'm oh, sorry just... about that, but <laughs> I just was so interested in that because I never heard of fan advocacy pro platforms before. Yeah, I haven't either. It was it was a new term at the time, I'm, I'm, and I, I think there there has been smarter ways. I think of uh, of artists and. And, and studios are thinking of smarter ways to owning a lot of those um, relationships themselves with direct relationships now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it was a way of, of grouping all those, all, all those different um, social channels all under one roof. It must be really important now with movies basically on television right now and uh, theaters not, that aren't open. So there must, it must be really a great tool for the studios. I, I, you know, I, I should check back in to see how they're doing. It's been a little <laughs> yeah, while, um, yeah, but yeah. I know that, that she, as you, as everybody knows, NFTs, all these different, you know, uh -huh. with Kathy, with your husband, and and the things yeah. that have gone just off the charts with the focus on that these days with digital and how important that's becoming. Right. Sure. Also, tell us about something you developed called Traffic on Demand, and how it led to ABC's digital branded radio station and i have a separate question is is that the station that's in the tesla cars the ABC no no so um when i was when i was at cbs at the time in this god man this was, this was in early 2000s when if you remember for american idol Amer american idol really fostered the growth of a lot of texting and texting contesting if you remember yeah. that yeah and at the time texting started to become a really big deal and we were thinking about with our radio stations and, and other properties how could we tie this to a second device 
And so, especially on an audience that was on the AM side of the radio, where the audience is a lot older, right? So we were thinking of ways to extend um, the use and the IP and the, the radio station's brand to another device. And I work with this visionary over there named David Hall, who just adore. He's, a, he's an incredible guy at um, KNX. He was running KNX AM. Mm-hmm. And, and then also KFWB at the time, which was um, the traffic on traffic station. I mean, they, they were doing it, every, every half hour. I'm not sure if they changed their format, but every half hour, it was always traffic on the ones. Mm-hmm. So the radio station dial was 980 and traffic on the ones. So we used the, um, I forget what it's called for, for text messaging, but just, as, just like the American Idol, you could have an, an ID and it was a five-digit code ID, 98011. And when you, you, you dialed that in, uh, you, you text that on your phone, it would say, where are you going? And at the time, and, and this was pre, um, obviously, pre-cell phone, also pre-any um, kind of traffic uh, guiding systems, like you mm-hmm. know, Tom, Tom's and all those systems. So in LA, traffic is everything, you know. Yeah. So no kidding. it was. It was. So if basically you you would you would you would dial that number. You would put in the route that you were going. So say I was going on the ten west. I would put t- nine eight zero one one. Put in ten west. It would say traffic is. You know, this is what you can expect. Here's here's questions, issues here. So first coming to LA, the first thing I bought was a Thomas guide, right? Back in the day. And this was sort of the evolution. This was sort of the evolution of that. This was traffic on demand. And then ultimately we, we grew to other types of devices. And I don't, I don't even think the next generation will even know, they don't know what to do, how to get to the next location without their mobile device. I don't think think young people can even read a map. They aren't being taught to read maps. Which maybe if they go to another country, they might have to. <laughs> what are the most interesting Mary's things going on at Intel right now? <laughs> the most interesting things going on at Intel right now. Um, we are the most interesting that thing that happened to us over the past several months is we have a new leader, and I couldn't be more excited that he is. You know, we had a, you know, our last leader was Bob Swan, who was great. But this new leader is so. Uh, he, 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 I mean, some people are comparing him to Steve Jobs. I know I don't want to jinx it. My God, I don't want to jinx it. But he just has uh, uh, what he's thinking about where we're going as a company and the, where the, the places that he's planting our flag um, with uh, with as a data company, a data driven company. And what's his um, name? It's super exciting. What's his, his name? name is Pat Gelsinger. Yeah, and he's uh, he came over from he was at Intel. He left, and then he came back. He was at VMware for a little while, and he's told and he and he said back when he was he back when he was at Intel in the early two thousands, he was I, being the CEO of this company would be my dream job, and he got it. Mm. And but he's he's deservedly so, and it's super exciting to hear him talk. And those were the places that I think we're going to go. Wow. Great. Anything else going on you can talk about? 
Oh, what else is going on? Yeah, sorry. Maybe it's top about. secret. I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, there are, there are a number of projects. I would say there's one of the other, in addition to traditional entertainment and where I see uh, media entertainment going in terms of virtual production. And virtual production, as I describe as, um, where you can envision a location, a studio stage, where that can be virtually created uh, with any given environment. So I could be, right now I could be in my house, but with the LED screen and with the virtual cameras, with, with a camera setup, with workstations and other types of technology, like how Mandalorian was created, you can imagine yourself on an, any given planet, any given place in the world. Hmm. And so it's really uh, creating efficiencies around how content can be not just, um, it, it's helped through the pandemic to some degree, but also how uh, content can be accelerated to these different types of platforms. And so every, there's, a, there's a big race, as everybody knows, with all, whether it's Paramount Plus, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Netflix, whether it's, um, HBO Max, whether it's Peacock, all these different companies that are uh, buying for your time. And they want to be the best and they want to be have the best content, the best choices, the best recommendation engine for you. So that's where I've been spending a lot of my time. But outside of that, where I see a lot of where I see a lot of it going is in the smart cities, smart spaces world and where smart venues and these new experiences that, that are, are coming to market. And probably can't share anything as of yet, but there's going to be an announcement in the next couple of weeks around a property um, that's more of this live-work-play environment. And live-work-play meaning you've got, you've got either a hotel or residence, you've got retail attainment, so retail and entertainment sort of combined. Um, you might have a venue space, and then you have maybe uh, these other walkways and bicycling and other types of environments around you that everything's connected potentially with these different applications where in, in, depending on the brand, the, uh, it could be tech forward or you, yes, the technology is there, but you don't want to be inundated with it, right? It's just, you know that it's there. It helps you, it, it helps you uh, support the experiences that you want but it's not in your face. Is that what a smart city is with the venues and different walkways? Is that how you define it? Oh, smart cities are so many, are so many things. You can have many cities, many smart, smart cities, um, that subsets of that, ur of these urban developments. Um, you have those, you can have a theme park in some way could be considered as a smart city mm. because of the ways that they're imagining that um, ultimately, in, in as some of these theme parks evolve, uh, how a, a, a park goer or a guest can interact and knowing before they get there what they want to do. So what's, what is that relationship with that brand? And then afterwards, what happens? How are they connected to, how, do, how does the park and, you know, connect, stay connected to them? Or why would they want to be connected to them? Um, but within that space, what are they going to do during that time frame? Are they secure? Um, how is their time utilized most efficiently? What is, the, what is the relationship and what is the value exchange between the consumer and the guest 
in that property. So they both feel like there's 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 a reason why maybe the, the, the guest is giving up some data in return for some type of reward um, and, and benefit of that experience. Tell us about the future of artificial intelligence, AI, and where do you see it going and what will be the main applications, do you think? Wow, what a question, Kathy. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times a week I have a conversation about AI for various purposes, for data collection, business intelligence, within the media and entertainment space. Um, and, it, and it goes back to some degree of, of that value exchange and what is the benefit, what does the consumer see as a benefit as well? And because privacy is such a big deal, right? I think there's, there's that fine line that you walk, right? Between what is, um, and, and, and now there's more regulations in place to prevent some of those things from happening, but AI is becoming more and more in, involved in every single thing that we do to create the efficiencies about the products that we buy, the experiences that we have, the advertising that we see. I'm sure when you and I talk on the phone right now, if your phone is sitting next to you and we just talked about Greece, I can almost guarantee that if you have a Facebook account, when you open up Facebook, you might see that you're, you're now going to be recommended for some Greece merchandise or something else <laughs> yeah. because yeah. it's just, these things, these things are all connected, right? I, I, I so, noticed that in yeah. President Biden's recent speech to Congress, he mentioned AI, and I thought that was interesting and in how it might work with government as well. It, it is everywhere. You know, AI is in uh, what they call scene intelligence in regards to how do you prepare a military for an exercise? How do you do that in real time? How do you throw them different scenarios in, a, in, in the wild and know that when you're standing in front of a, you know, a dilapidated building, how, you know, is the C4 or whatever the explosive device, is that the device that's actually going to break through the wall and kill the bad guy, get the bad guys, right? Um, all these different pieces that, that come to co collectively create these benefits. Um, I was going to say now within moving vehicles, right? You've got where you see the future going in autonomous cars. It, it really uses a lot of intelligence, right? Um, all the different factors that go into the scenarios that you can sometimes never plan for. You know, if you watch it, what is it? A State Farm commercial, the things that <laughs> you never can expect, right? These, these accidents that happen. Um, so all these different, I think at the end of the day, we, we just see so, so many ways that you want that once, once given a scenario or once given the way things that were done, even yesterday are always being looked at. How can you do them better? How can you do them faster? How can you do them with better quality? You know, and everything is being looked at. I think, I think AI is going to be driving all of that. I wonder how they'll be used in the it'll be used in the home as well. I think you you know we're starting to see some of that in, in smart smart homes with smart lighting, you know everything that's uh, that that that's knowledgeable about you and what what are the sense sensors that sensor type of data, um, 
you know, robot not vacuums, my expertise, but robot yeah. vacuums and, <laughs> and sure. everyone yeah. using Alexa to do everything in their house. Yeah. That's All true. that stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, back to Intel for a minute. What do you see as the most pressing demands on a company like Intel for the immediate future? Well, last year, for instance, um, virtual working from home, the virtual space for us. And it was, it was a conversation. I, re I probably repeat this example a lot because I think it's interesting. In working with Ted Shilowitz again over at Viacom CBS, um, he put it in a really unique way. We were working on a project together and he said, it's really fascinating to see how the transition happened when everybody was working in a location and everybody started working from home. And yes, we've had our glitches and yeah, there's been frustrating factors and obviously this isn't ideal, right? We want to be back there. We want to be having these face-to-face -face meetings. But nobody really thought by putting the pressure on the infrastructure, and the infrastructure meaning whether it's cloud, whether it's um, storage, whether it's you know compute, whether what all those different factors that come into play. Nobody really knew if it was going to work as well as it did. And he said, "Look at these. Look at this data center here." You're walking through a data center, and if you're walking through some massive cloud data center, pick your pick your favorite. Pick you know AWS or, or Google or Azure, all these different cloud partners. And you see these lights here. You see how they are once green. Well, now they're red <laughs> because everything has gone to supporting this type of infrastructure and and uh, all the different amounts of data that are now being leveraged for these types of conversations that we're having right now. And uh, so we continue, this is not, this is the growth in certain areas. And I know obviously some businesses have been devastated. Entertainment businesses hasn't been without, but on some sides of the entertainment business with platforms and delivery, you know, we've seen, we, we've been called upon some of those challenges for distribution, right? For the content delivery network. And um, that is just continuing. So um, businesses that continue to flourish in growth areas that we thought were never possible, it's not slowing down. Yeah. And on a completely different note, can you tell us a little bit about your family? Because I think you have a good yeah. story about meeting your wife. <laughs> I know my Okay. <clears throat> so um, I was. I was single at the time, obviously, <laughs> and <laughs> I met this guy that was really spiritual. And it just so happened I had dinner with him that night in a, a location that was very close to where I was like, he's like, hey, let's just grab a bite. I really want to sit down with you and talk with you. And I, I can't remember, he just wanted to get together. And it was really close to, we were in Hollywood at the time. And actually it was, I was there for a friend of mine, a friend of mine's gathering. And later that evening with a bunch of guys. And uh, so he's just saying, he's like, you know, Rick, you know, you're a single guy and, you know, you're in, you know, you're in your late 30s. And uh, what are you going to do? You want to you be, be in a relationship? What do you want to do? I'm like, you know what? I really, I'd love to settle down. I'd love to meet the right person. And he goes, you know what? I don't think you're ready. I go, no, I'm really, I'm ready. He goes, I don't know. He goes, why don't you stand up right now and say that you're ready? I like, I stood up and I was like, banging my 
hand on the table. I'm ready. I'm ready. Like in the middle of a restaurant. Right. <laughs> so, um, later that night, um, we go to a place down the street, this place called Laurel's Hardware, which was an old, actually an old hardware store. That's what it's called. Laurel's Hardware was a pretty good meeting spot. I think it's still around. And, um, I was there with my buddy and so I, I see, we see these two girls at the bar. My buddy starts talking to the one. It just so happens they both are from Philadelphia. So they're, they're having a great conversation. And so all of a sudden the song on the, on the, on the, on the speak, the song overhead plays, um, uh, skyrockets in flight, afternoon delight, afternoon delight starts playing. And I start laughing and she's like, well, what's so funny? And I said, Oh, and I was laughing. I go, ha ha, you know, do you like Will Ferrell? Ha ha ha. She goes, ha ha ha. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, and my buddy then looks at me, and goes, how's it going with like a thumbs up? And I'm like, eh, that's so good. So, um, <laughs> so then as the night wore on, um, I think of my other buddy, uh, that was talking to her, it was, I don't know if he, she didn't really care for him. So I think he was a little overbearing. And then she, she ended up, we, we just had, she had another cocktail and we were just having a good time. We related on the fact that we both, we both had lost her, our fathers. I don't even know how we got to that conversation, but we, um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. And I, I, I when somebody asks you, like, how'd you meet your wife? I met her in a bar. But it's just, start, it, it's funny how that the spiritual guy that started off early that evening, you know, was so, <laughs> I'll never forget it because I'm like, how in the world would that guy get me to stand up in the middle of a restaurant and later in the evening I meet, I meet the person I'm going to end up being with. You know, it's, it's so romantic and people never meet in bars that they end up with. You know, it seems right? like that's the, the country <laughs> songs say it's not. Those are one night stands, right? So th that's really fun. True. I love that story. <laughs> Back to Intel again. What are your favorite parts of your job? And what are the most challenging parts? Another good question. You guys have some zingers today. So my <laughs> favorite part of my job is really when people ask me what I do, I used to say it a lot more often. I say, you know, if you remember that character, in the movie, uh, of, uh, in the James, James Bond franchise, called his, his name is Q, I think, in the movies. He's the guy that's got all the cool devices, right? He's got all these tools, and he's like, you know, he doesn't know what they necessarily, he, he, he doesn't necessarily what they would be, what, what it actually would be used for. But at the beginning of the film, he always gives James the greatest tool to go out, and of course, it saves the day at the end of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't always know what the tool is going to do in that sense, but by giving, by having these tools at, uh, having all these business units, by having this wide array of, uh, of technology and, and all these solutions, right? And, and having, I would say, all these tools that we putting them in the hands of a creator or putting them in the hands of the media and entertainment companies to say, we've got this one use case. How could we work with you in making this something that would really be transformative for their business? And so that is um, super powerful for me as in, in, in working for working within Intel. And, and I've never had, that's what's so 
I'm so grateful about and, and, and never had that previously that were, I, yes, I had various tools and we would be good for a, a given area of focus, but now I feel like that tool, the, the tool shed has really expanded to a lot more things. So and, you're a real um, life cue. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, our guest today has been the head of media and entertainment partnerships for Intel, Rick Hack. You can find Rick on Twitter at Rick Hack and on LinkedIn, and on Instagram at RickHack9. And thank you so much, Rick, for your time today. It's been wonderful, informative, very and, interesting. And fascinating. Thank you, Rick. You're, you're too kind, and, and I appreciate you giving me this platform to speak to everybody, and, and I love the questions that you asked, and appreciate everything. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.